Welcome to the Psychology World Podcast. I'm Connor Whiteley, bringing you with psychology news, articles and other interesting psychology related articles. You where I can find the podcast notes and more interesting psychology related things and you can get your free 8 psychology book box set at connorwhiteley.net. Now let's get on to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 113 of the Psychology World Podcast with me, Con Wiley. And today's episode is on emotion and cognition. As this is an absolutely brilliant episode to celebrate the release of my brand new book, Cognitive Psychology, a guide to neuropsychology, neuroscience and cognitive psychology third edition. And in this episode I'll be going to look at the great topic of how does our cognition, so our mental processes, affect the way how we feel because of our emotions. But then we're also going to look at how our emotions actually affect how we think we think, and our other mental processes. So this is a great episode that I really did enjoy like writing and also, and also like recording. So but I cannot recommend this a great episode enough. And it is a Friday the 24th of September 2021 as I record to this. So a moon on psychology news section. So we've been from the British Psychological Society Research Digest. And there's some quite interesting ones. Immature joke. What kids' humour can tell us about their ability to emphasise. There's nothing less funny than explaining a joke. But analysing humour can actually tell us a lot about the development of sympathy and empathy in children. Having a joke land end is a complex task which requires an in-depth understanding of both the situation and the mental state of the person on the receiving end. One audience, for example, might find a joke hilarious, whereas another might find the same joke wildly, <laughs> wildly offensive. Definitely. Zeroing in on the appropriate joke, therefore, is likely to require a good amount of empathy. This ability to imagine the thoughts and feelings of your audience is a pivotal to humour being well received, but the relationship between humour and empathy has only been addressed in a handful of studies so far. However, new research gives us a window into how empathy shapes humour by taking a look at the junior, junior school children's use of the jokes different humour styles that emerge at different levels of empathy and sympathy so this i think is a great way to look at empathy uh, well you know because as i always mention on the podcast and also in a number of my books it's always really good to when we look at stuff through a like, newer lens so this is a great way to combine it to their mental psychology and other development of empathy through doing it through humour though because it because like as the article says though humour is a really complex task and it is really really like difficult because you really do need to know your like audience well though because some jokes that I tell my family and that we like egg best to each other we might be like fine with because we all tend to have quite a dark sense of humour but we have like of like humour though as I'm actually just thinking of like some of the examples but they're really bad so I can't say it's, but I can't say them on another podcast so to us it's a funny but to others we would seem really really cruel but also quite um offensive though so it's just like stuff like that and it's just really interesting to try and figure out how we can use these new approaches to a study of human behaviour in more depth. We think we've changed more in the past than we will in the future, and Americans seem particularly susceptible to this illusion. Think about what you were like 10 years ago. How have you changed in terms of like values, life satisfaction and a personality? Now picture yourself in 10 years in the future. Do you think you'll be just as different then as you were in the past a decade? When asked about past versus a future change, most most people, no matter their age, report more change over a period of time in the past than they predict the same period in the future. This 
end of history illusion has been well documented, at least amongst weird populations. And if people don't know like, what that means, it just stands for Western Educated Industrialized Something Demo- well, Democratic Countries. I can never remember what the R stands for. Okay, then. well, my have got like 4 out of 5, so that's at least worth some credit. Now, a new paper reports some cultural differences in susceptibility to it and applied some interesting hints as, as to why those differences occur, well, exist. So I won't go into the nitty gritty of this, but I really can't understand why some people fall for it. For example, I know for a fact I'm a completely different person than who I was to a, like, a decade or ago. To be honest, even like three years ago, I, I'm basically a shadow of who like that person was. But also, though, like if I look to the future, I do understand because at first I don't think I would change horrendously or I sort of know for a fact that I wouldn't change as much but like in the next like three years. But that's down to like a personal. So I really do understand this like um, illusion, and I think it's just something that we uh, can just like um, think about, laugh at, because because that's the thing about these like illusions. Like when you start to think about it, you really do see how like silly they are, but yeah, but also though like yeah, but like how malleable the like mind is. The pandemic has left us feeling wanting more personal space, even in virtual reality. The boundaries of personal space aren't set in a stone. They even vary widely from a person to person between coaches and between environments. For example, we might give a stranger a wider berth on the pavement, yet end up shoulder to shoulder on their trains. And though it may not feel like on a public transport, personal space is a consideration in everything from the design of the buildings to logistics for large events. In 2020, COVID brought a whole new element to, to the table in terms of our comfort levels around other people. Maintaining a physical distance was one of the few things that we that we could do for many months to limit the risk of infection. So for many of us, the personal space boundaries were suddenly our go-to but became no-goes. This has changed is a fantasy illustrated by a new reprint which argues that our personal space preferences not only tell us about the psychological effects of the pandemic but may be of use as an indicator towards regaining normality and this I do see the logic in because if you think about it right now we're starting to come out of the pandemic so you would hope that if we were turning back to normal our want for personal space uh, like would actually decrease and we would go back to pre-pandemic levels but I'm not sure that I would. I think I would still like to keep some distance from a stranger simply because I'm more aware of the passing of like in affection. So it'd be great to see what like you think. So definitely like let me know if you want. Yeah, because that's definitely one of the biggest questions actually. Will your distancing or like will your behaviour like go back to uh, yes like how we used to be pre-pandemic? That's really like interesting to think about. So I hope you enjoy the psychology news section. So let's move on to the person update. So I'm actually going to skip this personal update well, this week because my placement hasn't started and this week's been very up in that theatre and I've still done tons of stuff but none of it's psychology related so I'm actually going to skip the personal update this week. So as always, I always like, love to hear your thoughts and feelings on today's episode. So you can always email me, conwhitelyconwhitely.net. You can always leave a comment at the show notes at conwhitely.net forward slash podcast and you can always tweet me on Twitter at sci-fi-whitely. And today's episode has been sponsored by my brand new book, Cognitive Psychology. 
a guide to neuroscience, neuropsychology, and a cognitive psychology. As this is a great, easy to understand book that goes into so much depth about cognitive psychology and our mental processes. Some of my favourite chapters were basically anything to do with uh, memory. I really do love these chapters because they're really easy to understand, which is made even better by uh, when you consider how complex memory research is and there's so much stuff to memory. So I really did enjoy those chapters because we look at stuff like how memory actually works, then we look at the actual models, but we also look at the reliability of them of a memory and reconstruction theory. So I really do recommend those chapters. Basically, those chapters alone, because they will give you such an understanding of like other people, I think that those chapters alone are like worth the price of the book. So you've got that. And then there's also lots of other great chapters there were because like towards the end of the book, we really start to focus on the neuroscience of it. There was like how our brains actually affect the human behavior. So this is an absolute great book. I really do recommend it. And I really did in as well I writing it and that definitely comes out in the book so that is cognitive psychology a guide to neuroscience neuropsychology and cognitive psychology third edition available from all major ebook retailers and you can order the paperback and hardback versions from amazon your local bookstore or local library if you requested and if you want to get the ebook directly from me then please go to payhip.com forward slash connorwhitely so that's another personal update so let's move on to the content part of today's episode So we're moving on to the content part of today's episode. So we're going to be talking about emotion and cognition to celebrate the release of my brand new book. Because emotion and cognition is what I really dived into with this book. Because there's a good few really engaging, really interesting, a few thousand words on it. In addition to all of the other content. So it looks into how emotion affects our thinking patterns. But also how our thinking patterns and mental processes affect emotion. And that sort of, inter- and that sort of interaction is really interesting. and you really can really get into the like nitty gritty like with it. This book doesn't exactly go down into the nitty gritty because if that was true, then it would be like a thousand pages long. <laughs> but like simply because there's so much to this great interaction. But in today's episode, we're going to be looking at how does emotion affect our mental processes? And am I going to be reading an extract from my brand new, then I must well adding some of my own bits. Emotion and cognition. In the last chapter, we looked at what causes emotion and that we really focused on that area. But now I want to talk about the relationship between emotion and cognition, since these do go hand in hand. Because if you've read Abnormal Psychology, then you'll see that in depression, our cognition influences our emotion and vice versa. Therefore, let's recap from definitions, because our cognition are mental processes, like our memory, attention, perception and language whereas our emotions are less easy to defy, as we saw in the last chapter, as these are different from affective processes that are the feelings of emotions. Yes, and that's something else that I really enjoyed about this book, because I'll be actually looking at what's the difference between emotions and affective processes, because when you feel happy, that's not an emotion, that's an affective experience. So we really do get into really interesting things like that in that book. And also, though, I just like had a look at the chapter, and whilst there was some like, summary bits, bits that are like the previous chapters do we're going to a lot more depth about these like different theories so uh, to summarize the james lang theory proposes emotions are people's interpretations of physiological states like arousal but some people thought emotions were related to our um, to our motivations 
which in itself is related to rewards and punishment, meaning that these are signals from a situation or stimuli have a negative or positive value to an organism who should avoid or approach. The last two theories about emotion are from Zansarus, who propose emotions are the results of our conscious or unconscious evaluation of events. Also, Darwin and Ekman believe different emotions are basic evolutionary modules for different types of adaptive behaviours. Additionally, to build upon the last chapter in terms of what comes the first emotion or cognition, there are brain structures that are linked to emotion and these brain areas tend to be subacornical automatic and they're consists and they're consistent with Darwin's idea of emotion have evolutionary primitive functions. This is different from our brain functions because these are often linked to a cornical regions of the brain. However, the problem with discrete categories of emotion is that several emotions have no strong association with unique brain regions, whereas other emotions have a set of brain regions that are consistently activated at the same time as these emotions. History and all 2012. Dimensions of emotions. As a result of this problem, other cognitive psychologists are focusing on how emotion can occur along a continuum. Fedman, Barrett and Russell, 1998. And our emotional reactions can be characterised by two different factors. The first factor is valence, which refers to how negative or unpleasant or how pleasant and positive. Then the second factor is arousal, and this is the intensity of the emotion response. To test this, we can use the internal effective picture system, which is the system where you basically show puppets a series of pictures and you measure their behavioural responses. Um, by using a nine-point scale to indicate valence and you measure arousal when you get a more detailed assessment. On the whole, this allows us to test how behaviour and a person's brain system, brain activity correlates with effect and emotional arousal. Interestingly, results from this test show that older adults tend to have less negative effective experiences than young adults, as well as um, MAFA and all 2004 showed participants negative, positive and neutral pictures from the test. The results showed for, for young adults their amygdala activity was enhanced by arousing negative images, but this relationship didn't happen for old adults, showing how a sensitive measure of arousal and effect can reveal the biological mechanisms underpinning emotional differences in aging. But the results also shown overlapping neural networks that outperform different functions for adaptive behaviours. Emotion and the constructive predictive brain on a small side note, Lisa Feldman Barron in a 2018 TED talk made some very interesting points about emotion. Was she talked about emotions are not categorical, but we perceive them as a categories because the brain extracts a range of similarities from them because of our learned experiences. And she linked this to the predictive brain framework, which is a considered a paradigm shift in psychology. Hutchinson and Barrett, 2019 where our conscious experiences like our cognition, perception emo- and emotions reflects our brain's constructed predictions that are confirmed or corrected by sensory evidence. In other words, our brain takes in our learned experiences and it makes predictions about situations and other experiences, leading the brain to create our conscious experiences that we use daily, like our emotional reactions are based on our past experiences with a particular situation or a stimulus. Quick summary. To summarise all of this information quickly, there are a lot of different theories on how cognition and emotion relate to each other and the nature of our emotions, and this debate will continue on for a long time. 
Also, findings about emotion and cognition effects from a cognitive psychology can still be useful despite some unclear conceptual issues, as well as people tend to focus on the functional roles of our emotional states rather than the feelings. Adolfs and Andler, 2018. So, I know this episode definitely seemed a bit um, out of a context because I didn't realise when I picked this chapter to be today's episode that it actually relied on a lot of uh, the uh, content and a lot of the chapters before it. But if you've done cognitive psychology, then uh, you might have a rough idea what I'm talking about. And then uh, this chapter relies on a lot of stuff that she is further built upon later in uh, the book. So I really do recommend cognitive psychology. It's an absolutely great book that I really do recommend. And it also goes into um, a lot of depth and it's really easy to understand about the other areas of uh, cognitive psychology too. Yes, like even if you're not that fussed about emotion, then you still might want to check out the book because it goes into memory, thinking biases and so much more great stuff. So that is Cognitive Psychology, a guide to neuroscience, neuropsychology and cognitive psychology, available in all where the usual places. And if you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, then please share it with them. I'm always really grateful when you wonderful people help spread the word about the podcast. So have a great day everyone, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to see the show notes, then please go to connorwhitely.net. And if you want a free Ada book psychology box set, then please go to connorwhitely.net. Have a great day and I'll see you next time.